We have a delightful treat this morning, a woman of vision and passion. Please welcome Reverend Catherine McLeod. Good morning. Reverend Patrick and Laura are in California this week. They're taking a bit of a holiday, but right now they're at Asilomar for the conference. And I know that people come back from Asilomar, much like the teens, absolutely in love with life and with this spiritual teaching and spiritual community. So we send Reverend Patrick our love and our gratitude for all that he does here in this community. I know that he usually sings an opening song, and I thought instead of me trying to sing and learn a song, you wouldn't like it, that we would do a breathing meditation together as our opening. And so I invite you to sit comfortably with your feet on the floor and take a few deep breaths as we ease our way in to this morning. Breathe in and breathe out comfortably. I'm going to encourage us to breathe with this meditation from Thich Nhat Hanh, a simple little prayer. Breathe in and breathe out. Breathe in deeply. Breathe in, breathe out slow. Breathe in calm. Breathe out peace. And as you breathe in, smile. And as you breathe out, release. Relax. Breathe in this present moment. This wonderful moment. In. Breathe out. Calm. Slow. Breathe in this present moment. Breathe out this wonderful moment. In. Out. Deep. Slow. Calm. Peace. Smile. Release. Last time. In. Breathe in. Out. Breathe out. Deep. Slow. Calm. Ease, smile, release, breathe in this present moment, breathe out this wonderful moment. And so I know that the breath of God is breathing me in this moment. 
that there is a peace and a power, a creative energy within life, within me and within you, and I use it, and I allow it to use me. I know that this center is centered in a powerful teaching that believes that we have the ability to choose, the power to create a life and a world that works for everyone. And so in this moment, I breathe in joy. I remember the beauty of nature, the wonder of it all. And with deep gratitude for all of the people that bring the pieces, their talent and their time to this center to make this Sunday service truly work, I'm grateful. So I release this prayer of gratitude and joy and Awaken awareness into the heart of the universe, knowing that it comes back to bless each one of us. And I invite you to claim that with me, as together we say, and so it is. This morning I'm talking about cultivating wholeness. That's the title of my talk. And when I was nine years old, my dad put me on our little Ford tractor with a cultivator behind it and let me cultivate in one of our fields. I couldn't reach the clutch. I couldn't reach the brake, but I could reach the key to shut it off if I had an emergency. So he gave me a couple of rounds of coaching, reminding me that the cultivator was longer than the tractor and to give the fence line some consideration, not to whack it there because he was going to be fixing the fence that morning and keeping an eye on me. And remember, there was a dugout, kind of a washout in the middle of the field, and that if I got too close to the washout, I could actually roll the tractor. I was nine years old. It was the first time I had been trusted with such a wonderful task as this. I was keen and excited, and I felt competent and grown up to be doing that at nine years old. I look now at nine-year-olds and think, what on earth were they thinking? But at the time... I thought it was pretty fantastic, and it took everything I had to make those rows straight and to navigate the fence lines and to watch out for the washouts. I actually clicked on YouTube to see what year the tractor was that I was driving, and I found that it was a little Ford 1948 to 1954 tractor, and then I bumped into this little YouTube of a kid, 10 years old, a little boy, who was now driving an antique, his grandfather's antique Ford tractor, and his mother was video videoing him and commentating and saying, he can put the clutch in, he does that so smoothly, not a bump, he can back up. A little smart aleck. <laughs> I grew up in a small community, and there was often an annual church picnic or community picnic, and... So this little story kind of speaks to my heart of the, the, fa- the community family coming together and uh, breaking bread together and sharing their baking and their cooking. Different religious groups and different ethnic groups. A couple of friends, a Catholic 
priest and a Jewish rabbi were part of a small community and they knew each other very well and they'd had long philosophical conversations with each other and they had a very high trust relationship. They were at this picnic and the priest had a dish of food and said, Rabbi, you haven't lived until you've tasted Mrs. Hall's honey ham. She's curing it herself. It's just to die for. I don't know why you don't just have it a taste of it. I know it's against your religion, but why would your teaching not support eating something as wonderful as this kind of food? When are you going to just test the water? And the rabbi looked at him with a big grin and said, at your wedding. So in preparing for my talk of cultivating wholeness, I looked at some writing by James O'Day. And James O'Day was a director in Amnesty International for 10 years. He was the president of Noetic Science. He's an international speaker, and he's met with world leaders. He had a very interesting article in the Huffington Post, and I'd just like to give you a little flavor of it. He was really addressing his comments to political, the political situation in the United States and the campaign that was going on and probably the tenor of the debate and conversation that's going on in the States. But he said there are three qualities that we really need to cultivate in our own lives and we need to cultivate in, I guess, our leaders, whether they're spiritual leaders or government leaders. And they are empathy, the ability to have meaningful dialogue, and a concept of holistic systems thinking. So he described empathy as having the ability to put yourself in the shoes of another, especially when that other is in a predicament. To be respectful and honoring when people are in predicaments of life. I know that many of you have been following the killings in Colorado and the young man that is being charged with that, a 24-year-old by the name of James Holmes. It's really hard to stay open, open-hearted and open-minded when things seem so black and white. But this article appeared in the Boston Daily just a few days ago, and it's written by Catherine Osmond. And she writes, it's hard to look at the footage of the neon orange-haired James Holmes sitting in the court yesterday and not wonder how life could go so wrong. I can't look at him without thinking of my brother, My brother never hurt anyone. He was a gentle giant of a man who loved listening to music, painting, and talking about philosophy over dinner. But he also had a mental illness. And when his mood went dark, the person I loved disappeared and was replaced by someone I didn't recognize. People rightly want to know what Holmes' parents knew and what they tried to do to intervene. 
as their son lost control of his life. If they're like most parents with a mentally ill son or daughter, I imagine they had few options. Getting help for a grown family member with a severe mental illness, even with a garden variety depression, can be a complex series of small steps, many forward and many back. In my brother's case, his inability to stay on his medication, our family's helplessness after years of him being in and out of an institution that never really helped, ultimately led to his suicide. Then again, Holmes may have given no warning, never giving his family any sign of impending danger. We don't know. What we do know is that no parent envisions this. But for those of us who have wrestled with mental illness up close, with our own resignation in the face of its intractability, it's not hard to feel a queasy recognition when we see Holmes in that courtroom which is why I don't judge his parents. Staring into his vacant eyes, I can't help but wonder if his family could have been my own. I think it takes a person with some maturity and life experience to come to terms in this way with this incident and those incidents like it. James O'Day also says that we need the ability to have dialogue, which means that we truly listen with an open mind and an open heart to our differences, our differences of religious belief, our differences of values, our different ideas of the economy and the financial systems to our differences, to our differences about what makes a democracy and what doesn't. Because when we can't build those bridges between us, we become entrenched, and our society becomes filled with extreme, extremists, extreme ideas. That the ability to build bridges and find common ground is a a key quality that politicians and leaders simply must have if we're going to advance as a civilization. The ability to think as a system, holistically, when we're making decisions, to think about the financial world as well as building communities that are healthy and whole. The ability to balance the needs of the economy with the, the needs of the ecology the ability to balance our need to be in high relationship with other nations, even though we have quite different institutions, values, and ways of doing things. One of the sources of my talk today is an Indian philosopher, spiritual teacher, and writer by the name of Krishnamurti. He had a great influence on many people, one of them being David Bohm, a quantum physicist. Krishnamurti said that meditation is cultivating consciousness, and that through our cultivation of our consciousness, we come to a place where we are, our thinking is silent, 
and where the universe itself gives us a bigger idea and kind of opens up, moves us to a new way of thinking of ourselves and our world. Krishnamurti taught to many people where he talked about setting down all those thoughts that we have, this random racing of the mind, all of these high emotions that we become hooked and attached to, all the stories that are going on, and that we don't, we don't either accept or reject the busy mind, that we simply observe it. And that as we sit and breathe and just observe the thoughts within our mind without being attached, over the course of time, we kind of loosen them up. We find illogical thinking patterns, perhaps, that we've held onto. We release pent-up, probably, cell memory. And we come to a place of absolute stillness and silence within. A place where we are truly open to the divine. David Bohm is a quantum physicist. He's probably the, if probably one of, or not the most highly recognized scientists of the 20th century. He worked with Albert Einstein at Princeton University. Einstein said he thought that David Bohm would be his successor, and that if anyone could find a mathematical formula for the theories that they were working on, it would be David Bohm. And so one of the theories that they were working on, I'm not a physicist, and so this is a very uh, layman's version of it, but David Bohm in his writing said that there is an outer reality that he calls the explicit reality. And it's the, the part that scientists measure. It's the, if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist kind of thinking that most scientists in that field have. And then there's an implicit, which is about 96% of reality, that cannot be measured. But he said, they work as one thing. And that what you do to one instantly is, affects the whole. And he spent his time working on a mathematical formula to describe that. It's a theory. Part of that whole theory is that when a, the tiniest particle, a quantum, that they've discovered is observed, it changes. Just the, just the observation of it, it makes it change or changes it from a wave to a particle. Or if it's a particle, it changes to a wave. David Bohm dealt with big ideas, big theories, a brilliant mind. He also was a, a neuroscientist which looked at kind of where in the brain we think and feel and how the brain actually works. And I found it quite fascinating. One of the things he talked about was if you take a piece of paper and crunch it right up and cut it up, cut little slices into it, kind of like cut out dolls, and open it up. He said that's kind of a simplest version of the universe itself, that we see the crumpled up tiny surface, but underneath it there's this flowing, evolving, complex pattern of life. And that's the piece that he was interested in. But he said that unlike most scientists who believe that you can take this outer froth the top of a glass of milk and just work with that in isolation and that things don't affect 
the whole when you do that or that you can sort of put it in a box and study it and measure it and then quantify that this is how life really works. He said he really believed that everything in life is interrelated and so did Einstein and that he was looking at for proof of that, that he felt that Krishnamurti, this Indian philosopher and his own point of view, even though they came from completely opposite ends of the spectrum, one science and measurement and the other mystery of Eastern thought, that they really came to the same place in consciousness and in belief system, and they had long and deep conversations together. The other person that was very influenced by David Bowen, and David Bowen was very influenced by him as well, was the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama has actually spent a lot of time with various scientists and written a book about something about the atom, and I have a a copy of his book, and it's very complicated science. And so he has a very brilliant mind and is quite a philosopher, and he says that what he sees science in doing, quantum physics especially, and um, biology even, he sees them doing is unraveling the, the, the reasoning behind Buddhist teaching and Buddhist thought that science and scientists are simply explaining what the Eastern philosophers have always known and taught for thousands of years. And that is that we are individual personalities, but that we are really part of a universal wholeness. And that as we meditate and contemplate and ponder, we come to a place where we Divine grace almost intervenes, and we know that we are one. We are one with each other. We are one with the holy of life, the visible and the invisible. The Dalai Lama said that we are actually all Buddhists, that a Buddhist is just one who's purified and enlightened and sort of put to rest this random thought and all the poisons in our mind and is a true observer of life, the inner life and the outer life. And that whether you are a Hindu or a Muslim or a Christian or an atheist, if you have been able to do that, you're a Buddha. The other thing in neuroscience that I thought was interesting is that all these electrodes that they're hooking up to our brains they actually measure our feelings. They can tell when we're in our happy place, and they can tell when we're in our very down and depressed place. They can measure that through our bloodstream, but they can really see where in our brain that's happening. And one of the experiments that I really love, because it's such a nice match with this teaching, is saying that if you're with someone who's very positive and up, and you're maybe not, or if you're in a room with people who are all in love with each other, and in that positive, happy place, it affects your brain. They've hooked their people's brains up, and they see that there's actually a brain jump. It jumps from one brain to the other brain and transfers the emotion and the feeling. That's true of feeling depressed and negative. It's also true of feeling happy, positive, loved, and connected. We're looking at this little book, This I Believe, and this is a story about connection. This young man had just come back from the Vietnamese War 
at a point in the war, at the end of the war, when it was no longer a supported or believed in war. And he'd been warned as he was returning by his, his uh, peers to be careful that people were really quite hostile towards returning vets. There was no hometown parades and no celebration for these young soldiers as they came home. He said he was on the plane ride home, sitting by a window. There was no one sitting next to him, which increased his own feeling of isolation. But he said a young girl, not more than 10 years old, suddenly appeared in the aisle, and she smiled and without a word, timidly handed him the magazine. He said, I accepted her offering. Welcome home, she said. All I could say was thank you. I don't even know where she sat down or who she was because right after accepting the magazine from her, I turned to the window and wept. Her small gesture of compassion was the first I had experienced in a very long time. I believe in the connection between strangers when they reach out to one another. That girl undoubtedly has no memory of what happened those many years ago, and I think of her as having grown up, continuing to touch others. Since then, I have followed her example. I've tried in many different ways with different people to do the same for them. Like me, that long-ago plane ride, they'll never know why a stranger took the time to extend a hand. But I know that my attempts since then are all about and because of that little girl. Her offer of a magazine to a tired, scared, and lonely soldier has echoed throughout my life. I have to believe that my small gestures have the same effect on others. And to that little girl, now a woman, I would like to say, thank you. There are so many ways that we can cultivate our wholeness through looking at the complexities of the world around us and learning very complex and difficult skills of communication and collaboration. Even spiritual practice, I think, takes a certain amount of intellectual diligence. But I think that simple act of kindness, a kind word, just a sensitivity that my brain and your brain are connected, that we are connected at the head and at the heart, and that when my energy reaches out to you in your moment of perhaps feeling isolated, down and depressed, that just by being together, we can affect each other without saying anything, just through our consciousness. Another person that I looked at who's done some really wonderful research is Brene Brown, a social worker, and she looked at connection and what makes connection between people and why people children, families, individuals sometimes have their lives go out the, off the rail because they don't have connection. She tried to do a research project that would line it all up and organize it and codify it and sort of give us the formula for how to make connection. But what she really found out at the end of the day is that we all carry this shame, this reluctance to be vulnerable and open and honest and real, and that without that ability, we simply don't connect with each other. 
And so she herself went into therapy because she said it really became so obvious to her that she too needed to develop that skill of connection and authenticity and vulnerability. I think that we live in a world where so many things happen to so many people that we are often feeling vulnerable about our place in this world. We're vulnerable when we lay somebody off at work or fire someone or perhaps are sitting in the opposite chair and being the person who's being laid off or let go. It's very difficult to keep on breathing, to keep on trusting, to keep on holding up this consciousness that all is well and wholeness. But what this researcher found that at the heart of it all is that if we believe in our goodness and our wholeness, regardless of what's happening in the world around us, it's like having the breathing meditation in our pocket in those moments. It's like the song that we heard, that just knowing that the world is not black and white, that there will be times when we fall, when we're not perfect, when we don't know how to act or react, when maybe we've got a small idea about something that's happened in the world, to remember to stay open, to keep our hearts open, to talk to each other and build bridges and find common ground, to think of this world as a whole thing, not in fragments, but that when I step forward and dance into life, you're enlivened. And when I'm sad and feeling like isolating myself and looking out the window, just by being in your presence, on a Sunday morning, I feel the shift in my cells. We live in a beautiful universe. We have great power to create. I invite you and I invite myself to use that power from a place of love, from a place of authenticity, because I think that we are here. We want to create a world that works for everyone. That's all I've got. Namaste.